ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 29th of November. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Some of the criminals released from immigration detention could be locked up again soon as the Albanese government races to draft new laws to put them back behind bars. It follows yesterday's explanation from the High Court for the reasons why it overturned indefinite detention, a ruling that paved the way for more than 140 people, including murderers, sex offenders and drug smugglers, to enter the community. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. With just days before Parliament's long summer break, the government is trying to come up with what it calls rigorous and robust legislation. We are moving quickly to finalise a tough preventative detention regime before Parliament rises. The safety of Australian citizens is our utmost priority. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has revealed Labor's intention after the High Court published its reasons for ruling that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful, while also appearing to leave the door open for some people who've been released into the community to be re-detained. Dan Tian is the Shadow Immigration Minister. What we want to do is immediately put a preventative detention regime in place. The government has said uh, that they've got something ready, so now let's put that to the test. Have they got something ready? Because if they do, we look forward to working with them. Constitutional law professor Luke Beck from Monash University has some suggestions. So if the federal parliament was to pass a federal version of those state-based preventative detention laws, that would probably be okay as long as they are very narrowly targeted to where there is an actual meaningful, unacceptable risk of those kinds of really serious things happening. And it would only be a very small number of people who've just been released from immigration detention that are in that category who who might be somebody who was at risk of committing a terrorism offence. Acting Legal Director at the Human Rights Law Centre, Sanmati Verma, has concerns. Other than to pander to public opinion, there should be no reason to enter into a debate of that nature at this point. We would caution the government and the opposition, um, with whom the government appears to be working very closely, against swapping one constitutional problem for another. Creating a scheme like that in relation to people who are being detained simply because they don't have a visa does not make sense and will raise serious constitutional concerns. As the government races to respond, another legal battle is growing. A second High Court challenge has been launched to Labor's new laws requiring the recently released detainees to wear ankle bracelets and follow a curfew. The latest case is involving an Afghan refugee. I understand that several challenges have already been commenced and that several more challenges are um, in the wings. For weeks, the opposition's been claiming the government has botched its response to the initial High Court ruling. The Greens immigration spokesman, Senator Nick McKim, isn't impressed by the debate. What we have seen is refugees having their human rights trampled, once again being used as a political football with no thought at all about the impact that that is having on their lives. It's a disgraceful continuation of a bipartisan lockstep of cruelty towards refugees that has run through this country for far too long and it needs to end. Amid the political jostling, it's clear we haven't seen the last of the changes to Australia's immigration detention system. 
There are hopes for a second extension to the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas. The agreement's in its fifth day and Qatar says it's working with both sides in an attempt to delay the expected resumption of the war. Correspondent Adam Harvey is in Jerusalem. Adam, what's the next phase in this temporary ceasefire? Well, there's great hopes that 20 hostages will be released over the next two nights. There are reports tonight that Israel is willing to extend the ceasefire for a total of nine days. So that's three more days and already been agreed to, and that would expire Sunday morning. But that, of course, depends completely on the number of hostages who come out. We know that the CIA director, William Burns, is in Qatar at the moment, reportedly with the head of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, uh, trying to work out how this could possibly be extended. And one way, perhaps, is broadening the list of people who can come out to include some men or even female soldiers. And Adam, as more Israeli hostages are released by Hamas, are we hearing any more details of what it's like for the people who've been able to return home? We are starting to get some details of not just what it's like for people who've been returning home, but what it's been like inside Gaza. Reports from the Munda family, for instance, that they had to wait for up to three hours to go to the bathroom, that uh, they slept on plastic chairs all tied together. They'll move from place to place during their detention covered up so no one would recognise them. Thomas Hand, the father of nine-year-old Emily, says the thing that shocked him the most about what his daughter has told him when he asked her how long she thought she'd been inside, she thought it had been a year. And we've also heard from uh, Zohar Avigdori about what's happened to his family since they've been out. I will tell you that I think that they are very much overwhelmed and realising that they are now celebrities. I mean, yesterday when they came home, there were 2,000 people lined up on the streets leading up to their house. And downstairs, it was like like a teen band uh, pop concert for all the screaming and all, with all the screaming and all the cheering that went, went on there. We've also heard from the Bibas family. They've said that they've been told that their 10-month-old relative baby Kfir and four-year-old boy Ariel aren't coming out and it's a bit of a mystery why not the last two children who we think are alive still haven't been brought out. Correspondent Adam Harvey there in Jerusalem. The ceasefire isn't just allowing the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. It's also providing a chance to deliver more aid to the war-ravaged Gaza Strip. People in Gaza need medicine, shelter, water and food as Nicole Johnston reports. People arrive by foot and on the back of donkey carts, carrying plastic containers, desperate for water. And there isn't enough to go round in Gaza. Rami al-Razik is one of more than one million people who fled from North Gaza to the south and is now homeless. This is his fourth attempt at getting water today. There's been a daily struggle for water from when we were first displaced until now. Even during the ceasefire, they haven't found a solution to the water problem. They said they've allowed in fuel and aid, but nothing's changed. The level of suffering is the same and getting worse. Aid agencies say the healthcare system is catastrophic. And if it's not repaired, more people could die from disease than from the Israeli bombardment. Margaret Harris is a spokesperson for the World Health Organization. No medicines, no vaccination activities, no access to safe water and hygiene. 
and no food. We saw a very high number of cases of diarrhea among infants. And again, there was no treatment available for them. You know, if you have a, a child with diarrhea, you need to give them rehydration to, in order to keep them going until they get better. And if you're not able to do that, they can die very quickly from dehydration. With only three hospitals still barely functioning in North Gaza, hospitals in the south are overwhelmed. Gaza's health officials say more than 25,000 people are injured, but with the system breaking down, it's becoming impossible to keep track of all the deaths and injuries. James Elder is a UNICEF spokesman who's been visiting hospitals in Gaza. Hospitals are war zones, children scattered everywhere. I went to a hospital just a couple of hours ago to try and catch up with a child I'd seen and ended up seeing about 10 different children, all who have had limbs amputated, three-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and then I was in Khan Yunus in a camp and again seeing the, the dire sanitation and nutrition situation. So it remains perilous from corner to corner. Under the terms of the truce, Israel has agreed to allow around 200 trucks into Gaza every day. Before the war, more than 500 trucks entered Gaza daily. But there's been difficulties and delays. Every truck must be checked. Israel insists it's to ensure there are no supplies that will help Hamas wage war. James Elder says there should be no return to war. The world cannot turn away. How many times have we heard the international community say, say never again? Well, this is the moment of, of never again. It's right now. It's ensuring this pause turns into a ceasefire. We cannot in all good conscience possibly think that the destruction of Gaza and the killing of more children can possibly bring peace to the region. In Gaza, people say a temporary truce and a trickle of aid isn't enough. They want a permanent ceasefire and a return to their homes, if they still have one. Nicole Johnston. Some Indigenous leaders want to stop mining development until there's a firm commitment to rehabilitate the environment that's been dam damaged by mining operations. Traditional owners in the Northern Territory who have a toxic, disused mine polluting their land are angry that decades of promises to clean it up haven't been honoured. Jane Barden reports. For three decades, the deserted Red Bank copper mine on the NT's Gulf of Carpentaria has been leaking battery acid strength contamination into the environment, stretching 40 kilometres into Queensland. Cultural custodian, Jungai Donald Shabforth, can't believe the scene. Oh, I feel broken hearted for this. See it like this. Piles of disintegrating bags release chemicals into the wind. Rusted infrastructure creaks and orange and white bands crust the leaking tailings dam. It is devastated. I think it's a wake-up call for us to say, right, no more mining on this country. Acid leaching has turned the nearby Hanrahan's Creek fluorescent lime green, devoid of plants and fish. Donald Shadforth's family used to gather food here. When I was a kid, it was a beautiful little paradise here. It makes you feel sad because this country crying for help, you know. Since Red Bank Mine collapsed in 1996, successive NT governments have promised the pollution would be stopped. 
The NT Mining Minister Nicole Manison is now promising a study will start into rehabilitation options. And that consultation is continuing with the community there to look at what is the best way to go forward with rehabilitation of that site. But the mine site's native title holders, including Keith Rory, are sceptical. Well, we heard it for them before. They keep telling us they can fix their mine. Joe Martin Jard is CEO of traditional owner body, the Northern Land Council. From the Northern Territory Government, it's um, all talk and no action. All we're hearing is about a plan to get a plan. The NT government is actively pursuing mining developments to help supply critical minerals needed for the renewable energy sector, including wind turbines and electric cars. The Land Council wants rehabilitation to start first. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. The Land Council is also worried that new laws allow the NT government to use an $88 million rehabilitation fund for other purposes. Joe Martin George. If the Territory Government wants to research how to clean up legacy mines, well, you know, pay for it. Why should it come out of this fund? Mining Minister Nicole Manison. Because it will help drive down costs in other future remediation projects. If a mine can be remediated whilst also becoming a productive mine again, that is also a good thing. Another mining company is hoping to soon start a new copper and critical minerals project right beside Red Bank. NT Minerals Executive Chairman Mal James is trying to offer reassurance it won't cause pollution. To get any new mine up, you will have to make sure you're complying with uh, world's best practice. But native title holders, including Donald Shadforth, are deeply opposed to any more mining before the NT government rehabilitates Red Bank. Not ever again, unless they do something about this, clean this up. Native title holder Donald Shadforth speaking there with Jane Barden. Disability advocates are warning that Australia's education system isn't prepared to deal with the growing number of students who have autism. The Federal Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Bill Shorten, has already flagged that the scheme can't be a surrogate education system for neurodiverse children who need support. Jade Toomey reports. After struggling at school with exams, deadlines and bullying, Connor Winfield has just finished his first year at university. I would bet that most of my teachers didn't understand what autism was. By the end of year 10 at my mainstream Catholic high school, I was attending probably two classes on one day a week. The Canberra teenager is one of more than 223,000 NDIS participants who list autism as their primary disability. 69% are aged between 7 and 18. But inclusive education expert Dr Amanda Webster at the University of Wollongong says mainstream classrooms aren't set up to meet their needs. Certainly teachers do not feel prepared to teach autistic students in education classrooms. While there are optional professional development courses for teachers, there's no mandatory autism-specific training as part of a teaching degree, although there is a unit on inclusive education. It's only one semester and it's very general, and I do not feel it is meeting the needs. How our education system supports autistic students is the subject of debate. In the final report from the Disability Royal Commission, commissioners were divided on the future of special or segregated education, with some calling for it to end by 2051. Well, that's all well and good to suggest that, but we also have a mainstream school setting that's not set up to accommodate them. 
Nicole Rogerson, who's the Director of Autism Awareness Australia, says mainstream classrooms would need major changes before they could offer the special school services currently used by two in five autistic students. We're seeing research showing us the rise in homeschooling and school refusal. You can't lay blame here on teachers. They simply don't have the training or resources. There are also questions about who will drive this change. The Federal Minister for the NDIS, Bill Shorten, has already flagged that state education departments will need to take more responsibility for supporting autistic students. That might be true, and I agree with it, but at the moment they're ill-equipped to do so. So we can throw them this ball, but they will not catch it. Nicole Rogerson says autistic students are getting caught up in the government's attempts to rein in the ballooning costs of the NDIS. There's going to be some big real-time ramifications for this in the state education departments. So I, I think we've got a terrible situation at the moment, but I think it's about to get a lot worse. In a statement, the Federal Education Minister Jason Clare says an expert panel is advising the government on changes needed to help students who are at risk of falling behind. Jade Toomey. Heavy rain over large parts of eastern Australia has surprised farmers who've been bracing for punishing dry El Nino weather. The downpours are having a mixed impact. Recent fire fields in Queensland are now drenched and farmers are contemplating planting extra crops. But in South Australia, the rain has damaged some of the cherry crop, as Annie Guest reports. On Queensland's southern Darling Downs, Ross Bartley has been hand-feeding his cattle and facing uncertainty about summer grain crops, but the rain has brightened his outlook. Anyone relying on um, uh, feed for, for livestock, this has brought a lot of relief, there's no doubt about that, because before that there was a little bit of panic buying of hay. Uh, you know, everyone was grabbing uh, barley straw as, as it was coming out the back of the headers um, and filling the sheds. Uh, and uh, there was a bit of, um, yeah, there was a certain some high prices being fetched for hay. Just days ago, fires burned not far away. Put it this way, I could smell them every morning we woke up. They were that close. Uh, we had them in the hills around us. Uh, we had them uh, northeast, south and west of us. But, uh, look, it's put the fires out. How big a surprise is this uh, weather event, given lots of concerns around of dry El Nino period? And um, certainly um, you had to be under the right cloud, but this is very general rain, which is uh, really good rain. Most people, if they've got uh, uh, land or paddocks unsown, they'll certainly put some sorghum in or some uh, summer crop in or corn, uh, potential for corn. So uh, it'll, it'll fire up everybody. In some drought-affected areas of New South Wales, water is flowing into dry dams, but in parts of Victoria and South Australia, a downpour that left thousands without power has also damaged crops, including those grown by third-generation Adelaide Hills farmer Tony Taravolo. We've just gone out and had a bit of a look and we're already on around anything between 30 to 35% of the cherries that are hard are cracking already and if the weather doesn't stop raining, probably end up losing another 20 to 30%. The Adelaide region has been drenched by up to 100 mils or a month's worth of rain in 24 hours. Normally we get rain in October or maybe the beginning of November and we might lose one or two of the early varieties, which is not a big concern, but to come just now um, ready for our Christmas month, yeah, it, it's pretty heartbreaking out there at the moment. What will it mean for your Christmas sales and the availability of, of cherries at Christmas? Oh, look, I think as far as availability, it's a little bit early to tell. 
we, we do export a few cherries, so I wouldn't be exporting after this weather event that we've had. I think it'll be very risky, so we would rather leave them on the local market. While Western Australia has largely missed out on the heavy rains, the forecast for Eastern Australia includes wet weather through to the weekend. And a guest reporting, that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The High Court's delivered a ruling that's now seen the release of more than 140 people from indefinite immigration detention, some with serious criminal backgrounds. Today, Chief Political Correspondent for the ABC's 7.30 program, Laura Tingle, on why she thinks the political chaos that's unfolded since the court ruling has been an unedifying debacle. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.